You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So, there's a, there's a really, really good chance we'll finish chapter 9 this morning. Um, I heard that. <laughs> I think there's only like, I think we've only got two or three verses. To go. No, we've got seven. We'll make it. So let's take a, a moment and, and read through chapter 9 from uh, verse 19 through the end of the chapter. Whereas Paul declares again what he said in verse 1, that he's free. And we're going to see how this chapter ties itself up, or is tied up by Paul in ministering to this wayward group of Corinthians who, who as we've talked about before, seem to be able to get everything wrong. So verse 19, chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all, that I may by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly, after I have preached others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul, this morning we're going to look at a couple of things, quite a few things actually. We finished up with verse 19 last week, where Paul declares that though he is free from all men, he intentionally, purposefully made himself a, made himself a slave to all so that he might win more. He waived his rights that he was given as in the second birth. The rights and freedoms that Christ brings to every one of us as we become believers by God's sovereign grace. Paul waived them. He had a job to do and he wasn't going to cause people to stumble because he insisted on his rights. Do we see people insisting on their rights today? No, but everybody's, everybody's subservient and kind to one another. Everybody is, is, is selfless and wanting to serve others, right? You see it everywhere in the public square on TV. What alternate universe am I living in, you're asking? It's one of my own making. It's my, a unicorn. It's one of my own making, and I like to live there. A lot of people do. They like to live in the idea that, that others should serve them. Paul. His whole, all three journeys were to serve others, were to bring the gospel, were to bring hope, were to bring freedom, were to bring deliverance from the very things that these Corinthians were, were serving, were stuck in. 
And so Paul, he, he, not only does he just say, though I'm free for all men, I've made myself a slave, he's going to line it out for us. He's going to give us some examples. We like examples. So verse 20, he says, in this vein where though I am free for all men, but I've made myself a slave to all, the first group I made myself a slave to, he says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. Now, isn't Paul a Jew? He's a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. He was Jewish. He was born. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says. What do you think he's talking about here? Well, the gospel covers everything. The gospel makes us all children of God as we trust in Christ and are born again through the sovereign work of God. So Paul says, I'm going to, now I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer, I'm free from all men, I have, I'm a slave to no one, but to the Jews, whom I actually am one, I'm going to become as a Jew so that I might win the Jews away from his former teaching, away from his fire-breathing pharisaical days. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. So now we move into a section of comparisons. Sometimes when we see these comparisons, we make assumption that because so-and-so is this or does this, he is not that or will not do that. And that's not what Paul's going to be doing here. He's not making statements about what he is so much as he is talking about what he will do in order to further the gospel. Now, I'm going to say, state this at the outset, and we'll see it as we go through this. Paul will never compromise Scripture. He will never compromise the truth. He may become a Jew to those who are Jews. He may act as those to, to, he may come to those who are under the law as under the law. Even though in the whole book of Galatians, he speaks against trusting the law. We'll see the difference there. So Paul is not going to compromise the truth when he becomes a Jew. He's not going to compromise the truth when he acts as though he's not under the law or is under the law. He's going to be guided by the Word of God all the way through. He'll never do anything that is unbiblical, but to many it may sometimes, in his day especially, it may seem as though he is bumping right up against the line. He does no such thing. It is what is in his heart, and I'm going to qualify that in a minute, that dictates and his heart is guided and owned by the Word of God. You don't come to some conclusions and then look into the Scripture and see if you can substantiate them. You start with the Scripture. And that's what Paul did. His heart's, his heart's desire is to see Jews come to the Lord. And he even says that he would sacrifice his own salvation. He says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them, for them is for their salvation, Romans 10.1. He would even use the jealousy that might come in Jewish circles when they saw Paul preaching to the Gentiles in Romans chapter 11, 13 and 14. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. He was sent to the Gentiles by the, the Lord Jesus Christ. But even in his ministry to the Gentiles, he was hopeful that it would create jealousy in his kinsmen so that they would want to come to the Lord. Romans 9, chapter, three, or chapter 9, verse 3, For I wish, he says, that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And he didn't just say that. I think he, he meant it. Now, fortunately, his salvation was secured by a sovereign act of the will of God. So he didn't have to worry about that, but he was sincere. He would that his salvation could be suspect, subject 
to the other, his brethren becoming Christians, becoming uh, servants of God. That's how much he loved people. And, and that's part of the reason Paul was so successful. People knew that he loved them. Simply abiding by their ceremonial regulations, the Jews, or observing a special day while refusing to eat foods they deemed unclean was a small thing to Paul if by it he could win some of them to Christ, who would then bring them to the freedom and the freedoms, freedom singular and freedoms plural individual that they have and you and I have when we are children of God. They would no longer be subject to rules and regulations as it says in, in Colossians. But that's God's business. That's not Paul's business. Paul's business is to become a Jew so that he might win them. His business is to become as those who were under the law so that he might be, win those under the law. Though he says, and he qualifies it in this verse, not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. So simply abiding by these regulations or observing a special day here and there while refusing to eat unclean foods they thought were unclean, if he could win some, win some of them to Christ, it was a small thing to him. <laughs> None of those things, the regulations, the special days of the foods, were anything to Paul because he knew that the word of God spelled out salvation was by grace through faith alone and that everything was a work of God. In doing this, it would help him win those who were Jews. It would help him win those who were under the law. So in order to become more effective winning Jews to the Lord, Paul had Timothy circumcised. That circumcision was of no benefit to Timothy, nor to Paul, but it would allow them the potential to lead many Jews to the Lord. There was no demand for Timothy to be circumcised, but that's what Paul decided to do because he knew in the venue he was going into, it would speak volumes and it would, be, it would open an avenue of ministry that nothing else could open. Am I being recorded? might be best that I'm not. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Yet, in the book of Galatians, he, Paul strenuously notes that when he went up to Jerusalem, taking Titus along with them by revelation, he went to preach to the Jews there, but because there were false teachers there asserting that you had to keep the law in order to be saved, he would not allow Titus to be circumcised. Because why? Because they were putting their faith in the law, not in the Lord Jesus Christ, not in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the difference. Paul was not under the law, but hear, hear what he says in the next verse. What, oh, the Holy Spirit really knew what he was doing, you think? Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain to you, for you. The law wasn't the problem. It was the faith in the law for salvation that was the problem. The law cannot save. And those people who wanted 
probably wanted Titus to be circumcised, wanted him to be circumcised because that was his avenue of salvation. And Paul said, no, not doing it. He will not be a, 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 a totem, <laughs> that's what it would be, to you of someone who demonstrates in my ministry that people who are circumcised, they're the ones that are saved. I'm not going to have Titus circumcised for that very reason. It is confidence in the law as a method of salvation that is dangerous. And this is what Paul strove to teach. Do not put any confidence in circumcision or in any other aspect of the law. Salvation is by grace, grace through faith only. Paul did not change his doctrine. He adapted his behavior in those two specific instances in order not to offend. One can do this knowing full well that once someone is drawn to Christ, do you trust that? Do you trust the Holy Spirit to work into that person's life and begin to teach them the truth and move them away from the false theologies and teachings they've had? You think the Holy Spirit can handle that? Yes. In capital letters, he can. So, if you find an opportunity to, to submerge your freedom in Christ, not violating the doctrine of the Word of God, but to submerge your freedom in Christ so that you can bring someone who's under the law, who is a Jew, to the, to the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can then trust Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Father through the Word of God to work in their lives and bring them to the freedoms that it talks about in Galatians chapter 5. Stand firm in your freedoms. He will win their heart and change it so that they will recognize that their salvation is an awesome gift of a benevolent and loving God, a gift that they have no right to receive, nor do we, but that has been bestowed upon them solely at the discretion of a sovereign God, the sovereign king of the universe. Rede recognition of this and the love that comes from it will begin to persuade this new believer that they can stand firm in the freedom that Christ has purchased for them. And that's how it is often. Uh, missionaries talk about Years later, they're still dealing with some of the false theology in believers in certain parts of the world, witchcraft and things like that. But the Lord is capable of removing those teachings from their lives. The, the question is, are we willing to put ourselves in a position where we seem to be sacrificing our own freedom, some of our own freedoms? One commentator put it this way. This passage has often been looked to for the idea of accommodation in evangelism. That is, of adapting the message to the language and perspective of the recipients. This has to, uh, despite the need for this, that discussion to be carried on, this passage does not speak directly to it. This has to do with how one lives or behaves among those who one wishes to evangelize. So, how are you behaving? How was Paul behaving when he was with the Jews without, without indicating that his salvation was from the law? He lived as a Jew. When he was with those who were under the law, even though he says, I'm not under the law, I, I acted, I lived as under the law in order to win more. Any questions, comments? Our freedoms in Christ are wondrous things, but they're not to get in the way of the opportunity to win others to Christ. And it's, it's a wonderful thing when, when you can accommodate someone and see them come to Christ, and then watch step by step as the light bulbs come on throughout their entire, through the, the grace to grace uh, sanctification that will occur in their lives. And then in verse 21, he says this, to those who are without law, speaking of the Mosaic law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. He never moved away from the moral and biblical law of Christ. 
To the Gentiles who did not have the Mosaic law, he lived as one without the Mosaic law. But he makes it clear that he did not abide under the law and that he, ab he abode under the law of Christ. He did abide under the law of Christ. And that the law which comes from the heart, enabled and put into action by the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, is a code that would daunt even the most noble of Old Testament believers. The Old Covenant said, do not murder. The New Covenant warns against inordinate anger and calling a brother a fool. It says this, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, or you moral fool, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Which is easier? Not murdering any, well, I probably shouldn't ask, but I'm guessing nobody in here has ever murdered anybody other than things that need murdering, like steers and pigs that, that you know, that perform very, very obvious uh, services for us on our dinner plates. But, so, but, I, and I see it all the time, I can't believe what, how, many, how often believers call other people idiots, fools, stupid, dumb. Don't do that. Just don't do that. The Old Covenant said, Moses commanded the Israelites not to commit adultery, but Jesus took it to the next step, warning his followers that, the lust which, that lust, which is the precursor to adultery, must be avoided, avoided as well. Matthew chapter 5, 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman <laughs> with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Can the law stop you from doing that? But can the Holy Spirit, can the Word of God, can the influence and the work of the sovereign God of the universe in your life? The law can't stop it. But Paul was willing to come to those people as without law in order to win them to the moral law of Christ. And then the Holy Spirit would change them step by step, day by day, grace to grace, becoming more and more like the Son of God. Maybe not at a speed we want. Maybe we think it should be faster. Maybe they need to get rid of this. How come they're still doing this? How come they're still... Let us turn the introspection, the, the focus inward. Romans 13.8 and, Rome, and Matthew 5.17, we'll get to those. When the Gentiles, when with the Gentiles, Paul identified as closely as possible with their customs, but he never would violate the moral law of God, the moral law of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this, everything he did was guided through the Word of God by love for the Gentiles. Romans 13.8. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Do not think I came to abolish the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And Romans 13, 8 says that when you love, when you love your neighbors, you're fulfilling the law. And thus, loving one another fulfills the law. Galatians 6, 2 specifies that the law of Christ includes carrying one another's burdens. And so, not being under the Mosaic law, but being under the law of Christ, that changes everything. It causes us to desire to serve others, rather than to do it out of duty to the law. The Gentiles would see this, and it is part of the reason that they converted in such large numbers under Paul. Paul loved them, and they knew it. He agonized over them, and they knew it. He wrote to them, he begged them, he pled with them. He lived it amongst them, and they knew it. 
have you ever heard the saying that your walk is talking so loudly I can't hear your talk? Or some version of that. Maybe I butchered it. The point is, what we do often, more often than not, speaks far more loudly to people than what we say. Any comments about verse 21? <laughs> You're all laughing. You know we're not going to make it to the end of the chapter. Verse 22. Okay, so he's becoming a Jew to those who are Jews. He's living as though he was under the law, though not being under the law, he says, to those who were under the law. He's, to those who are without law, he acts, he, he behaves, he satisfies their need to hear from him, but not without the law of God or the law of Christ. And now he says, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. To the weak, he says, I have become weak. The weak have been identified variously as those without the power of understanding. To those, Paul would give repeated teaching as necessary to bring them up to the understanding of the gospel so that they might be freed by it. We can see this in the Corinthian church where he reminds them again and again of things that they should have known. Do you not know? And I'm going to tell you again. And Peter talks about it. Oh, I should have looked that up. He says, it's, it's, this is a paraphrase, but he was not ashamed to bring again to them the basics of biblical Christianity. The basics. We should always be concerned about staying abreast of the basics of the biblical of biblical Christianity. We can see this in the Corinthian church, as I said, where he reminds them again and again. It has also been suggested suggested that he was referring to those with extremely sensitive consciences, such as the believers spoken of early in this epistle, who were damaged by their brethren going into the temples of the idols to partake of the meat there, and because of that connection, that that context, if you will, that book context, that's a very likely uh, possibility. In this case, he would have accommodated their weak consciences and not violated them, just as he said earlier. He wouldn't have gone into those temples and partaken of those meals in the, in the idol temples. He wouldn't have, because it would have, it would have seared their consciences. It would have damaged their consciences of the, weaker, of the weaker Christians. In either situation, whether it is a weak brother or someone who needed extra care to help them understand the gospel, Paul would accommodate this. He would bring the gospel in every way, shape, or form until it was clear that people were rejecting it out of, out of uh, sheer, they, they were just not going to come to God. But to those who were truly seeking, who were under, not understanding, he would cover it in every which way necessary in order for them to be able to come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Any comments on verse 22? Verse 23. I do most things for the sake of the gospel. No. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul summarizes here what he first stated in verse 19. Actually, he alludes to it in chapter 9, verse 1. But he summarizes what he first stated in verse 19, that he became a servant to all. He does everything for the sake of the gospel. He would not change truth, nor would he compromise principle, but he would condescend to whatever level was necessary within the moral law of Christ to bring people to the Lord. He would restrict his liberty. He would go the second, the third, and even the fourth mile. He would make sure that the only thing that offended those that he brought the gospel to was the gospel itself. His manner and his practices would not be the culprits in driving people away from Christ. He did everything for the sake of the gospel so that he might share in its blessings with others. One of the problems I have when I'm sharing, when I'm working with people, is I talk over them. I don't listen carefully. I don't wait 
or I'm busy thinking of a reply rather than really paying attention. That's a terrible habit. That's not a good way to bring the gospel to people. You need to hear their heart. You need to hear what's going on in their lives, what, what's happening to them, and then think about it. Take time. And so that's, a, that's, that's one of these things I'm trying to learn. One of the things I'm trying to do for the sake of the gospel, to, to stop being there with a ready answer. I've got an answer for that. Do you know that people aren't always looking for answers to their problems? Especially you husbands. I have to remember that. My wife isn't always coming to me for a solution. She just wants to talk. She, she's very capable of figuring out the solutions herself. Very Probably far more capable than I am. She just wants, you know, a board to bounce this off of and uh, to, to respond and, to, and to, to encourage and to, to love and to, and to suggest maybe, but, but to listen. And so those are some small things, but those are some small things that we can do, that we can be more accessible, more able to bring the light of the gospel into people's lives. When they know you're really interested in them, when they know you really care, they're more likely to open up to you. They're more likely to come to you. Um, that was kind of a verse 23 anecdote, if you will. What do we do for the sake of the gospel? And then he says, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. He would make sure, I said, the only thing that would offended people was the gospel itself. His manner and his practices would not be the culprits in driving people away from Christ. He did everything for the sake of the gospel and so that he might share in its blessings with others. And that's, based, that's what church is about. That's what a body of believers is about. We're sharing with each other. We're fellow partakers of the gospel. And, and we are responsible to one another. We are here in a manner that we are each other's sounding boards, if you will. Friends, neighbors, um, not just acquaintances. And we do that for the sake of the gospel as well. And one of the things that really pushes, will really extend the effect of the gospel into the world is when people see how they love one another. See how they love one another. That's something that it's very difficult to argue with. When, they see, when, when the world sees a group of people who really care for one another. Not from the same family, actually. From the same family, that's probably more important sometimes, but and harder. Any comments or questions about verse 23? Verse 24. Do you not know, another one of those, that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Setting up a contrast in the way races are run here. Paul alludes to the Olympic and the Isthmian Games. The Corinthians would have been very familiar with the Isthmian Games because they were held in or near Corinth every, um, it's been said variously every two years or every three years, but every few years there were, there were competitions, races, second only in importance to the Olympics held in Corinth. Then as now, athletes trained for months and years ahead of the Games. They denied themselves things that would reduce their abilities. They ate properly, they slept properly, and they practiced, 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 and exercise, exercise, exercise. And at the end of all this training and all this self-denial and all this work over years and years of time, they want a pine wreath. I got a chainsaw. You want a pine wreath? I'll get you one. I could probably do it with a machete. Five minutes, you got a pine wreath. Well, there was more to it than that. They won lifelong notoriety and fame. Many of them were treated like gods and goddesses. Can you say Hollywood? 
you don't want to say Hollywood? Got it. Okay, don't say Hollywood. I'll say it for you. <laughs> kind of chokes me to say it. Sounds like today, doesn't it? But in the final analysis, what they won and what the athletes of today win are prizes and adulation that are temporary. Temporary at best. Do you remember who won the 200-meter freestyle in 1978? Who was it? You're not telling. I don't. Now, there are some names that are famous that stick in our minds and some that no longer self-identify as Olympic athletes, but that's another story. But for the most part, we don't remember. They won short-term adulation, short-term think, and it's gone like a breath, like the flowers in the sun in the next day, the grass in the sun in the next day, as the scripture talks about. What, what uh, in the races then, and the competitions then, as now, there's only one winner. To re with regard to the Christian life, everyone who disciplines themselves to run the Christian race can win. And we're not talking about a participation trophy. This is a real crown that God says, you can win, I can win, by disciplining ourselves to run as someone that will win. And that word win is an interesting word, and we will get to that. Um, not a participation trophy, but crowns that are provided by the King of Kings. In races and competitions, we compete with others. But in the Christian life, we compete with ourselves, if you will. We do it out of love for the one who saved us, but we do it so that we might win. The word translated win in Greek is a word which actually means to aggressively lay hold of something, to grab it, to take it as yours. Uh, it also includes the idea of comprehending or understanding. The Christian runs for a prize that will eventually, by God's grace, be laid at the feet of the Savior. It would be a gift to the one. It, your crowns, that you are winning in the race that you're running for the Lord Jesus Christ are trophies that you will have the, the ability to lay at the feet of the Savior for what he has done for you. Not that we can pay him back. We can't. But it's a, it's a tribute of love. It will be a gift to the one who gives them eternal life and gives you eternal life. It's a gift unspeakable that no amount of training or ability could ever have won. And this is, this is some of the, the content of the definition of that word. The idea is that understanding, knowing what the life takes, knowing what it's going to require of you, you run the race, you run the race hard, and you run it to acquire, but not for yourself, but for the Lord and for the benefit of others. One of the crowns is has to do with evangelism and discipleship. Yeah, those, those folks in faraway countries may win that crown, but what's important to them today here is that they're winning people to the Lord Jesus Christ in faraway foreign lands. Actually, far, far, it's very important that it needs to be done here. Uh, Montana is a faraway foreign land. Moscow, Idaho is a faraway foreign land. At any rate, maybe certain sections of Sandpoint could be considered faraway foreign lands, considering the type of things that go on there. Any comments or questions about verse 24? Verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games <laughs> exercises self-control in all things. They do it. They then do it, Paul says, to receive a perishable wreath, a pine wreath. But we, an imperishable, the crowns that you win in your race for the Lord Jesus Christ are imperishable. They're eternal. They will last forever.
For this perishable time-bound crown, those who would compete in the games exercised self-control in everything they did. Consider the training schedule of an Olympic athlete today. One typical schedule started at 6 a.m., packing the equipment for the day, a breakfast of almond milk, cinnamon, bana cinnamon, bananas, blueberries, and dates with tea and water. Where's the cocoa puff? And the bacon. I mean, really? Nowadays, athletes, oft athletes often have to compute to commute, and so it can include as much as an hour to an hour and a half drive. The next morning workout, the next the morning workout, which can last as much as three to four hours, and will include running, weight training, and aerobics, and other specific exercises to the competition they're going to be in. Now lunch, which is usually nothing like a trip to the McDonald's. It will include protein and fruit. 2 p.m., second workout. Two to two and a half hours in the gym, which again include weight training, running, aerobics, and other methods of exercise appropriate to the competition they'll be in. Free train snack, English muffin with one teaspoon of peanut butter. Tablespoon of peanut butter. Why did I focus on that? Because I like peanut butter. After this, dinner, and then an early turn-in, only to repeat it the next day. <coughs> so, that, so that they can win a crown that will perish. So that they can win fame that will go away. So that they can win adulation that will be short-term. Just kind of bl blurry a little bit. that better? <laughs> the Christian, on the other hand, competes for an imperishable, eternal reward. Salvation and... E Pardon? The Christian can have peanut butter, too. That's the cool thing. You get five crowns and peanut butter. But not on your crown, no. The Christian, on the other hand, competes for an imperishable, eternal reward. Salvation and eternal life were purchased exclusively by the blood of Christ and given to us by the Father. The Christian can compete for five different crowns. And there's the scriptures. I'm going to jump to the crowns. We'll talk about, I'll, I'll jump back and forth for a minute here. He can compete for an imperishable crown. That's right here in this text. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. The second one is for evangelism and discipleship. 1 Thessalonians 2.19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? The third one is a crown of righteousness. And there's no specific order to this. It's just how they appear. Crown of righteousness. Uh, and it's for loving the Lord's appearing, 2 Timothy 4.8. In the future, whoops, let me go back. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The next is a crown of life for enduring trials. James chapter 1, verse 12, and Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then Revelation 2.10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And then the last one mentioned is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, which is for shepherding God's flock faithfully. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So those are five crowns. They're, un, they're imperishable. They're eternal. They're rewards that your Savior wants to give to you as you discipline yourself and run the race in the Christian life. Not participation awards, not participation awards, but real, genuine value that you can lay at the feet of the Savior and, and love Him for it, love Him with it. The training includes study of God's Word, fellowship with other believers, regular confession, repentance, and the application of the teaching into your life, among other things. That's what the crowns that God wants to give us require, the discipline necessary to win them. Whatever endeavor we take in life, in order to do it well, it will require self-discipline and training. And we must voluntarily, in many cases, restrict our liberty. When we would rather be sleeping, we should be out pounding the pavement. The Greek word that is translate competes is the Greek word from which we get the word agony, agonizo. The Christian who would run his race well needs to put aside anything that gets in the way of doing that. If athletes can do that for silver and gold, or even a pine wreath as they did in the first century games, can we not do it out of love for our master? And is training sometimes agony? Yeah. We know weight training and running and aerobics and those kinds of things as you try to get to the next level. No pain, no gain, which is why I've never gained. Other than weight. In the same way, in the same way, when Christ reveals in our lives those things which need confession and repentance, those things for which we need to go to our brothers and sisters and make right. That can be painful. That can be painful, but it's gain. It's the right kind of gain. Repentance, training, confession, study of the word, fellowship, digging deep, understanding, studying, concentrating, and asking God to reveal it into your life so that as, as the needs become evident in your life to turn from or turn to, you will do it by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Verse 25, any questions, comments? We're going to make it. Verse 26, therefore. Now, what's that therefore, therefore? It's therefore what came before, all of those verses before. I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. The Christian must have a goal in mind. Paul says not to run as someone running aimlessly, like a chicken with its head cut off. His goal was to minister to as many people as he possibly could. It was to submerge his own freedom in order to give others the freedom that can be found only in Christ. And to that end, he disciplined himself. He studied, he wrote, he traveled, he counseled, he disputed. And in his day, travel itself was a horrendous undertaking. It's not like today, although it can be difficult as well today. But back in those days, that was a serious undertaking. And what Paul did to bring the gospel through those missionary journeys to people all over the known world at the time was remarkable. And those people knew it, that he brought, the, the folks that he brought the gospel to, they knew it. To that end, he disciplined himself. He did not let himself be caught swinging at nothing. He had a target in mind every day. He was not a shadow boxer. In Paul's letter, 12 different times he makes reference to athletic contests in some way, shape, or form. He talked about runners, boxers, gladiators, chariot racers, chariot racers, and trophies. Throughout history, this is a metaphor that always carries implications to the pe that people will understand. In every, in every culture, people understand the metaphors related to sports and to endeavors like that. And so it's a good one. 
If a person sits indoors and thinks about how good those vegetables are going to taste, but he never plants a garden, he is figuratively beating the air. He's shadow boxing. He's working without goals. He has no goals. We're not to be that way. We're to run in such a way and box in such a way as not beating the air and run in such a way as not without aim. If you're running the 100-yard dash and the tape is there and you run this way, the fastest anyone has ever run in the history of the universe, do you win? No, because you've got to break the tape. You've got to run across the finish line. You made it to the corner coffee shop in 9.1 seconds, but it doesn't help. You have to have a goal. You have to run in such a way as not without him and box in such a way as not beating the air. This, this is an interesting metaphor, and I think it's one that we all get, don't we? It's, it's really, really common. It was common back then. It's been common throughout the centuries. Any comments about verse 26? Closing the chapter. The Christian. But I discipline my body, and I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Verse 27. This chapter closes with Paul encouraging the Corinthians, and by extension us, that we must, as he did, discipline his body. He said he made it his slave. The word translated discipline is actually... Very interestingly, a word that came from this concept of giving someone a black eye. He kept his body under. He made it his slave. And sometimes it feels like you've got to slap yourself around a bit, doesn't it? Don't do that. Knock it off. Don't tolerate those kinds of things. That's what Paul did. He did not want to be disqualified from winning the prize or prizes that the Lord had ready for him at the end of his race. This is most certainly not about losing his salvation. That's not what he's talking about. The word is actually from the Greek word which is for disqualified, which is what judges would do in races and competitions in which should someone not win the prize. Should, should they compete improperly or should they simply not win when they have to make a call? And it's talking about the prizes, not the salvation. <laughs> he wanted to practice what he preached. In the book of Galatians, Paul castigates the Galatians who apparently had abandoned their race. It was disobedience, not disciplining themselves and keeping their bodies under that caused them to stop running. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? <laughs> Let me start over again. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who caused you. A little leaven leavens the whole dump of dough, lump of dough. Stay in the Word. Drop everything through the sieve of biblical theology. Everything that comes into your life so that you aren't hindered from obeying the truth by the wrong kind of persuasion. The Galatians had allowed their self-discipline to fall away. They stopped being persuaded by the Word of God and began to be persuaded by the words of men. Just a little bit here and a little bit there. And finally, they stopped running. We all know what that's like. You, you have a goal in mind and you let it slack off for a little bit little bit more and pretty soon you're no longer running that race whatever it was whatever that race was it can, this can happen in our Christian life we can become weary we take our eyes off the prize we stop looking to the captain of our salvation and we begin focusing on the difficulties in our lives often this is where we need each other we need each other friends and family who are brave enough to come to us and say is everything okay are you doing all right I've noticed that you've slacked off in some things how can I help what can I do Someone who's brave enough to do that. Sometimes that's what it takes is bravery to do that and to be done in the right way. 
We have been admonished in many different ways to treat catastrophes as training. There truly is nothing that comes into our lives but that which is allowed by the Father of lights in order to focus us, turn us back to Him, and each and every one of those circumstances is for our good. Romans 8, 28 through 30 has always been one of the most important, at least for me, parts of the Scriptures, and it's important to our training regimen. Paul says this in Romans 8, 28 through 30, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. You're going to become conformed to the image of His Son. So that He would be the firstborn among many brethren, glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. He called you. He justified you. He is training you. And you will be glorified. Look to the rewards that God has provided, not for their sake, but for the sake of His Son. We want to win them for Him. So this chapter started with Paul defending himself as an apostle. And then he walks through a litany of reasons why he should be able to expect the Corinthians to support him in his efforts to bring the gospel to them. It culminates with him refusing that right, refusing to assert that right, and to delineate why he brings the gospel. He does it for the Lord. He does it for the reward that King Jesus has waiting for him. He does it out of love to those to whom he brings the gospel, for those to whom he brings the gospel. Indeed, this entire chapter is a demonstration of what a de genuine Christian with full rights in Christ will do in order to live a life of service to the Lord. What he will undo, what he will undergo, what he will set aside, what he will eschew, what he will put away in order to win others to the Lord, in order to live a life of service. Are we willing to restrict ourselves in order not to be offensive to our weaker brothers? Are we willing to discipline ourselves so that we extract the greatest benefit from the efforts we put forth? I'm not implying that service to the Lord is done in our own strength. It must be done in the power of the Holy Spirit by and through the Word of God. This is what Paul is pressing his listeners to do. We can do no less. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.